Welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. King Nebuchadnezzar, it's it's the year 602 B.C., and he's had a terrible dream. And a servant, Daniel, who's, who's a very godly young man, who's about 19 years old, prayed because... Nebuchadnezzar wanted to kill all the people, uh, all the dream interpreters, because they couldn't interpret the dream. And Daniel found out about this when they came to knock on his door to take him away to kill him. And he said, give me to the king. Just just give me there. And he got in front of the king and, and he said, king, I can do this. My God can do this if you allow me time. So he gave him the, uh, the night and, and the next day Daniel comes back. And this is where we're at. So ta- Daniel not only tells him uh, the dream, but also the interpretation of the dream. Verse 31, it says, you, look, uh, you looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not, but not by human hands. It, was, it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed it. Uh, the better translation there would be pulverized it. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were broken into pieces at the same time and became like ch- uh, chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. In other words, it just floats away. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. I would have loved to have been there to see Nebuchadnezzar's eyes as they got bigger and bigger as Daniel just nails the interpretation of this dream. And you notice Daniel doesn't go, well, well, king, did, did I get it right? Daniel knew exactly what he was talking about. And the king was just amazed by this. Now, uh, you know, almost the whole Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But this portion of scriptures is written in Aramaic. And it's as if God is saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not speaking to, to uh, the Hebrews here. I'm not speaking to my people here. I'm speaking to the whole world about this dream. And to Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, this dream, you know, represents future prophecy. We look back at it and we go, oh, if we've studied this at all, we go, okay, hey, that, that's, that's world history. I kind of see where this fits. I kind of see where, where that fits. But to them, this is like right then. I mean, this is stuff that's going to happen. This is, it fascinates them. They don't know what's going to happen. It's like for us, as, as we get down and we start thinking about the feet and the toes of the statue, the mixture of iron and clay, you know, we don't know exactly what it means, just like the statue, the whole thing for them. Verse 36, it says, this was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. Now, it's always good to start out like that when you're talking to a king. You, O king, are the king of kings, and he's talking about earthly king of kings here. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours, 
Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, who will rule over the whole earth. Verse 40 says, finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush, crush and break all the others. Just as, you, uh, just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with the baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than the iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor it will be left to another people. It will, be cru- it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Couldn't you imagine Nebuchadnezzar, kind of on the edge of the seat, kind of listening, kind of almost inching a little closer, going, that, that's it. That's my dream. That's what it means. You can almost, you can almost get a sense of, of Nebuchadnezzar here. You know, he's, he's king, yet somebody else is telling him something he doesn't know yet. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream covers a, a, you know, a, tam, a, a panoramic view of, of Gentile history. The rise and fall of, of kingdoms, starting with 602 BC and leading up till sometime after this morning. That's what, the, you know, it just encompasses all of that. The statue begins with the golden head and, and moves down to silver, then, then bronze, and then to iron, and then ends with iron mixed with clay. And as the, as the, you know, the, uh, the material moves down the statue, I don't know if you would notice something, but it would decrease in value but increase in brute strength. It's like a trade-off is happening with, as empires evolve and they trade beauty for strength. As, this is, as if to say, hey, you know, beauty is great and, and everything, but what you really need here is strength. And you build in strength until you get into the feet. And then iron merges with clay. And the clay represents a weakness and the term, you know, feet of clay that we use today, it, you know, harkens back to, uh, you know, this, this right here, Daniel chapter 2. Well, let's go back through this. So in verse 37, Daniel tells the king, O king, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. And here I got to, I forgot to put this up. Here I got a picture of the different things. And I'm going to leave this picture up as we go through this because I want you to kind of visualize this at the same time as what the king is hearing. Uh, he's hearing it verbally, but he's picturing this in his head, something like this. The God of heaven has given you dominion over uh, dominion and power and might and glory. In the hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over all them. You are the head of gold. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he would have loved to being, you know, the head of gold. You know, like Mark over here kind of, you know, trying to squish my head back down. I got a big head from one in the roundup, you know, for the bake-off. Well, imagine being king. Imagine being the ruler. Imagine what kind of head he would have. He would love this idea that he's the head of gold. 
What, what did you say, Belteshazzar? Did you say I was the head of gold? You know, the kind of the, that whole thought pattern. You, O king, you are the, the head of gold. Oh, I love this interpretation. Now, the Aramaic word for gold is shimmer. And Babylon literally shimmered in beautiful gold. It was called the golden city by all the people of the, of the known world at that point. There was more gold on public buildings and temples and, and all these other buildings out there than any other city in the world. And Babylon was huge. Think about this. The outer walls of Babylon. And these are just kind of the, the first fortification. You know, these aren't the huge walls, but these are the, the small ones. The outer walls were 56 miles of walls. That's 200 square miles of wealthy excess that Babylon had. The Babylonian Empire was, was the shimmering superpower of 605 B.C. Now, when you start to use the words like superpower, it kind of brings it home, doesn't it? Who is the superpower in the world today? America is right now. Now, the reason why I say right now is because eventually our country one day will not be the superpower. Well, how do I know this? Well, because I'm a, you know, I'm a student of biblical history. I'm a student of the Bible. I, I read it, and everywhere I read in the Scriptures, nowhere do I see the United States fitting in the picture. We may have a small, you know, a small little deal into it, but we don't have a huge role in the end times. So that means our power, our superpower, will have to someday diminish. I'm going to leave that alone as to when and how and all that right now. But one day in the end time, we won't have, you know, as big of a chunk of it. We have a place, but not the superpower. In verse 39, he says, After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to you. Now, Nebuchadnezzar rules from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C. His sons and, and a couple of others rule from, you know, all the way until 539 when the Babylonian Empire is conquered. First by the Medes and, and then by the Persians. History puts these uh, two together and they call it the Medo-Persian Empire. If you think back to high school, you know, history class. Medo-Persian Empire. This is what we're talking about. And this is a good idea to, to kind of get a picture of biblical history, world history. They go side by side. They go hand in hand here. History puts these two together, like I said. And, and hence it has the two arms of the statue is what this represents. Now history tells us that Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. And Isaiah talks about Cyrus in Isaiah 44. And if you're awake and you're paying attention, this is going to just kind of blow your doors off here. Verse 24 of Isaiah 44 says, This is what the Lord says, Your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord, who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by, him, by myself, who's, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners. And who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. This is almost like just a hobby of the Lord here. Who carries out the words of the servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers. Who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Who says of, of, of the towns of Judah, they shall be built. And of the ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will save Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let the foundations be laid. 
Now, who is Cyrus again? He is the Medes and the Persians. He's not a godly guy by any means. He's not a follower of Yahweh. He's not a follower of the Hebrew God. But here God refers him as if he's you know, literally on his team. It's like God is saying, I am going to use Cyrus. That is why I have him in power. In chapter 45, Isaiah goes on and says, This is what the Lord says to the anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take, a, uh, take hold of to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their armor. God is sitting there going, I'm going to totally bless this ungodly guy. It says, to open doors before him so the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that they may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor. Though you did not acknowledge me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Now this is a powerful statement made through Isaiah. That God is going to use a pagan, a pagan king to accomplish his purposes. This is an amazing thing about our God, and it blows me away. He can use people who are not serving him, who don't even recognize him or who have never come to him in a respectful way. He can use them in this way. Now, this is what will really blow your doors off. This is just the prelude to it. You know, Isaiah 44 and 45 was written in 700 B.C. Now we're in Daniel 600 B.C. You know, we're at the time of Daniel in 600 B.C. And they will have to go all the way to, you know, before the Medes and the Persians. I mean, think about this. 150 years at least before a man named Cyrus was born, before he was even there, before, before the Medes and the Persians were even a power in this world. I mean, are you tracking here? Before Cyrus was born, Isaiah wrote this down. Before I, you know, Cyrus's parents were born, Isaiah wrote this down. Before Cyrus's grandparents were born. Now, as Lisa and I are, are having a child, I'm even, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, how cool would it be for me to, to not only write a letter to my child for when they get married, but how about his child when they get married? Or how about their child when he gets married? This is the same thing. Isaiah is writing a letter, and it's from God, saying, this is what's going to happen to this young man. That, that I mean, you know, think about it. Cyrus was not even in the top 100 names in the baby book 150 years ago just amazes me is my wife and I have tossed back names back and forth and and we finally came up with the name Brandon Josiah for our young one it amazes me that God did this so far ahead of time then God says Cyrus would release the Jews the captive Jews except when he writes this the Jews aren't captive yet they must have thought Isaiah was just a nutcase. Think of it this way. Imagine a guy in a newspaper saying today, Behold, out of the Caribbean will come Jim. He will unite all the nations of the Atlantic Ocean. 
And he will, you know, the nation of Caribbean, you know, the nations of the Caribbean will, will, will rule the world and they will come and restore the ruins of California. I mean, you, you'd be, you'd think the guy is just nuts. You're like, okay, I don't know. Yeah. Whoever that is, don't even, just ignore him. This is basically what Isaiah, what he did, what happened with Isaiah. So as we study the book of Daniel, one of the things that we see over and over again, it's God's sovereignty. Well, what does the word sovereign mean? That's a kind of a church word we use all the time. It means he is in control. It means that he has always been in control. He will always be in control. There will always be powerful people who think they are in charge, but they are not. And this is, is God is saying to King Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're in control, but you won't be later. You, you think you're in control now, but ultimately I'm in control And this is a very powerful message for anyone who is in power. You need to hear this. Nebuchadnezzar is dead and gone. And God's word lives forever. Think about that. We need to understand this the same as as today as it was back then for any of us who has power over at least one person. Now, raise your hand if you have power over at least one person in your life. You're a boss or you have kids or... Okay, everybody's going, I'm not going to raise my hand. <laughs> parents, if you didn't raise your hand, I guarantee you, if your kids were in here, they would raise their hand. And they're sitting there going, I have power over my parents. That's a whole other sermon. But here's what God is saying. If you are powerful, you will not be powerful forever. So be aware of that and be humbled by that and act like that. So everyone knows that you get it. And it reflects on how you treat people. It reflects on the decisions that you make. Well, so after Nebuchadnezzar leaves, Darius, in the, in the big picture going back to the world history, Darius comes in, and Darius is, is of the Persians. And, and I got a picture here of, of Darius. This is actually a relief that they, that they took off of one of the palaces, and they took it. It's actually in the British Museum now. And, and this is a picture of Darius. But after Darius, there's a third kingdom of bronze, Alexander the Great. Darius thinks he's conquered the, the, you know, thinks he can conquer the Greeks, and this is a mistake for him. So Alexander the Great, as a young man, defeats not only the Medes and the Persians, but he goes on to defeat the rest of the world by the age of 30. And, and if you think, you would think that he would be happy. And it's, it's written down that, that he actually became depressed. And it's recorded that he screamed at his commanders, give me another world to conquer. So he starts to drink. And then one night on a, on a way home from a party in a freezing rain, he catches pneumonia and dies shortly thereafter. His empire goes on without him for another 270 years. Okay, verse 40, it says, I'll stay on that picture. On verse 40, it says, Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. Now, I don't know if you've, seen, you know, like the movies like Gladiator and stuff like that, but if you do, you'll notice the, the Romans used a short, short, a short sword made out of iron. And this was their thing, and it, it literally crushed nations. They took over the world. And um, the, the legion just dominated everything and everyone. They would either starve you out, 
wait you out, smoke you out, or literally just knock down the walls and take over. That's just, they, they did not take no for an answer at all. And they use this iron short sword uh, to do it with for urban warfare, to go into the cities to, to fight. The Roman government, the government was very passionate about starting Roman colonies. And the Senate would often uh, vote to go to war just to keep the soldiers busy. Because, uh, you know, soldiers that aren't busy, that, that's a dangerous thing back in those times. So let's just keep them busy. So they went from one war to, an, to another war, conquering the known world at that time as much as they could. Now, the Roman government, as they were passionate about this, you see that they took over Alexander the Great and the Greeks, and, and that was a, you know, a people who, who cooperated, and they just kind of assimilated into their society, and they mixed those two things, took the, the best of both worlds in, in their view and put it together. Yet, you have the Hebrews, and if you study the New Testament, and you'll see all the problems, the Hebrews did not submit to the Roman government. So you kind of see the, the difference between the two styles there. And as you can see what Isaiah was talking about, when you look at what happened to this world, the iron has come down and mixed with the clay. European and American governments have so many Roman influences to that. And we're going to talk about it uh, in a second here. But, but you have the two legs of the statue. And the Roman government ends up being divided into two divisions, east and west. And it wasn't really planned. It came out about politics and religious disagreements. And that's how we get the east and the west governments. The west came under control of Rome. And the east came under the control of Constantinople. Constantinople it used to be what? Istanbul. There's, a, there's an old song about that. It's a great old song. And I would sing it to you if I could sing. But since I can't, we're not going to. But the East became, you know, becomes part of the Byzantine Empire. Now you might recognize that word again from high school history. And you're thinking, oh, high school history, I don't want to hear this again. But I think, again, I think it's important for us to understand the worldview in the midst of biblical view, the biblical worldview. But the, the Byzantine Empire, uh, they went north and east. And, and this goes all the way to Russia. And even they went into Alaska and Canada and even came down to California coast. We had some Russian influences here at, in California. Many of you probably, uh, if you didn't grow up in California, you probably don't know that. I had to learn that myself. But this all reflects one leg. Now, the other leg represents uh, the Rome and, and, and Europe. Rome and, and Paris and all the n- other nations that the, the Romans colonized there. Uh, you know, and, and the idea of colonization is good. You know, either assimilate from their Romans' point of view, either you assimilate with us or we're going to kill you. So in their point of view, it was good. Just assimilate with us and everything's okay. The Roman way. Well, we do the Roman way in America. Now, I'm not going out to killing people, uh, you, you know, but I'm just saying that we have a Senate. We have a, you know, we're a republic. We have a balance of power. At least we tell ourselves that we have a balance of power. We act like the Romans. We take over countries with iron. We send our our machinery over there. And and I'm not being anti-American. I'm just recognizing what we do in the big historical context of what this means for us. What is our national symbol? The eagle. Where did that come from? Rome. Now Europe and the Soviet Union... Cannot, you can also see the Roman influence within them. 
And, and the point I'm making here, the legs are just kind of, the legs just kind of merge into the feet, and it's not abrupt change like all the other stages. And I really couldn't find a great picture. I, I kept looking around uh, on the on the web and, and coming up with different pictures, and none of them really were were that great. Uh, so, but you don't really see the mixture of the right at the feet. The, it just kind of blends in together. Little parts are are clay, little parts are iron. So you have that mixture there. Well, if you look at Europe. What do you have there? Well, you have the Holy Roman Empire, the remnants of that, small groups of, of relatives in charge, a lot like the Romans. The seat of power just kind of moves around from, from Rome to, to Paris to different places and ends up in Germany for a while. And when it lands in Germany, uh, what were the leaders called? Kaisers. What is that word a derivative of? Caesar. So they were continuing the Roman type of, of ruling. And now uh, the Russians word for czars comes from what word? Caesar. It's the same concept. So you see how the the Roman iron just kind of blends into modern history. And if you're a student of of modern modern history, you'll take note of, of a particular year. Because both the legs of the Roman Empire, both east and west, both of these empires ended in the year 1918. Now, if you go back and, and you look at some of these statues that I was trying to find on, on the, uh, you know, pictures of them on, on the web, you'll, you'll see that something like 476 or something like that, they kind of say, well, that's when it ended. But the more I studied and, and the more I looked at, at different scholars and what they, what they were, were saying about this, I really believe that it came all the way to 1918. Because in 1918, what did you have happen? I mean, what a year this was. Uh, you had, uh, um, let me find it here. The Russian czars were overthrown and murdered by the Bol- uh, Bolsheviks. Thank you. I can't read my own writing. And then, so you had the Roman, you know, the czars being taken over and, and basically destroyed. That whole eastern leg, in a sense, of, of the Roman government there, which is totally destroyed. And then also you had the end of World War II. And, and what was that? No more Kaisers. That was the end of the Kaisers. So you kind of had East and West both going away on the same year. Now the same year you also had the plague. And did you know in a 16-week period, if you want to bring this into America, over 550,000 people died in a six-week period in 1918. What a year that was. Yet God is totally in control of it all. And this is the beginning of the feat. So you think about the different metals of the statue, and you see this abruptness from, from one, one ruling party, then another ruling party, and then another ruling party, into the blending at the feet. Now we're going to go back to uh, verse 41. It says, Just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, as you saw iron mixed with clay. And the toes were partly of iron and partly clay. So this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be mixed and not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. So you have something going on here in world history. And I think we are in the feet at this point in world history. You have clay mixed with iron. Well, what is that? Iron represents that, that brute force, the world powers, the, the military. And clay, well, clay, every time clay is mentioned in the Bible, it talks about human beings. 
talks about humans. So you have this, this concept of, uh, of, of world power, of strength, of military, and then you have the concept of, of human beings. Now, you can bring in governments, you can bring in democracy, you can bring in the United Nations, you can just anything that humans would, would ultimately, in, in a sense, want to control in a peaceful way compared to the military way. And you have this time where iron tries to force, you know, mixing with humans and democracy in a rolling way. And it never really mixes well. So you will see, you know, the the clay at at some points, and then you will see iron at other points. And it's not a natural mix. You have the military and the financial strength of iron, then you have the democracy and voting, the the fighting the the big guy. Everybody has a voice, and that that is democracy. Now, when it comes time to describing democracy, the statue seems to describe it as a relatively uh, you know, weak form of government. Now, we don't like that. I don't like that idea either. I'm like, well, democracy, it's the best we got. Well, I agree with that statement. But at the same time, democracy and iron strength, that, that, that idea of military, they don't mix that well. And there's a bit of truth to that. What happens when, when people become fickle and they vote for the wrong people or the wrong law? You can even get fickle or, or even you know, ambivalent and not care what happens. But then you have the military. So you've got the two sides here. Well, in the context of Daniel chapter 2, if the feet is the same era as world democracies, then the, the mixing of iron and clay is very interesting because they don't mix well as we've talked about. Now, let me tell you kind of where my mind went with all of this. Because it even, isn't even the, the real point of, of Daniel here. The point to Nebuchadnezzar is about, you know, big rock coming and, and smashing it all up and, and destroying it at the end. But since we live in the feet, I think it's a, you know, we think it's the most important error. Democracy only really works when everybody speaks up. I think you would all agree with that. The problem is, it doesn't, work when only the wealthy speak up. And this is what we see in America in both parties. And I'm not, I'm not anti-democracy, don't get me wrong here. I'm just looking at it from a, from a, a worldview or a biblical worldview at this point. Because, you know, we have this problem with both parties in America. Unless you have money, you can't get the politician on the phone. Some would say, well, that's not true. My response is, go try it. Try to call right now and get a hold of somebody. Unless you have money, especially during this election season... You're not going to get anywhere near those guys. They're busy. This is a struggle for them. They can't listen to every person. So they tend to listen to groups that help them stay in office or those who, who you know, make a lot of noise with a group. Or uh, you know, This can be very frustrating because in order to maintain political power, you have to compromise. You know, the old win-win for everybody. The problem is it's never a win-win. It's just compromise. And every compromise you make, you move away from the person you really want to be. Now, in a Christian's point of view, every compromise we make, the Bible calls it what? Sin. Every compromise we make as a Christian, the Bible calls that sin. And compromise does not work well with a Christian life. This is why the feet are weak. It is a a weakness of democracy. You, You have a mix of people and iron. A mix of, of money and those you serve. It is not democracy that made America great. And, and we, we always like to say that. You know, something else, something else has uh, made America great. 
It is something that, that makes all nations great when they have this. What makes nations great is righteousness. Righteousness was what made America great. There are times when we've totally gotten it right. Even today, sometimes we get it right. And there are, you know, but when any country falters and starts to stumble, they start to lose kind of their superpower status. And the Lord participates in this all the time. So what do we do with this? Well, instead of just agreeing with it, going, okay, yeah, I get it. I, get it. I understand what he's trying to say. Well, in Matthew, we're called to be salt in a society. And what does salt do? It preserves the society. So one of the things we're called to do is to get involved and stay involved in issues that involve righteousness. And if you're leaning a little more Republican than Democrat, different things come to your mind depending on how you've been brought up. If you're more green, different things come to mind. If you're, you know, if you're a Democrat, other things come to mind. If you're part of the Tea Party, you're, you're, you started thinking, man, I'm, I'm really thirsty right now. Sorry, I, I, could, I had to do that. But in every group, there are some great people. Now, some of you would say, oh, no, 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 there's not. And I would disagree with that. I would say, yes, there are. Because within all these groups of people, there's there's some of those that are working on causes that have to do with biblical righteousness. So the deal is, we shouldn't say, every Christian should be like this when it comes to their political beliefs. What should happen is we should find the righteous causes within the framework of how we've been brought up. So, you know, on the framework of, of what we could feel good about working on and get out there and work on that. Let that be our common goal as Christians. Sometimes that means just writing a check to whatever cause that is. Other times that means getting your hands into it, getting dirty in a sense. Now, as Christians, it's important for us to, to not look at others and say, wow, <laughs> my cause is so much better than their cause. That would be like me saying, well, my pumpkin dessert was so much better than the other pumpkin dessert. On that night when they voted, it happened to be. Now, my, you know, the second prize was a, was a nine-year-old. She can cook. But we can't look at everybody else and go, well, mine was so much better. It's a waste of time, really, in, in my view. And this is my personal view. This is not necessarily a biblical view, but it's sort of kind of a a biblical view. But it's a waste of time, in my view, to argue Republican, Tea Party, Democrat, Libertarian, because you're really not going to change somebody's mind because most of the time it's the way they were brought up. What we ought to be doing in the church is saying, what is a righteous cause that I can get involved in? Narrow it down to one or two, and then jump in. Then you become salt in a declining society. The scriptures say, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Or in the words of the motto of the state of Hawaii, a nation that uh, we happen to take over with iron, financially and political, if you go look at their history, we just kind of took over their nation one day, literally. But their, their motto is, the life of the land is preserved in righteousness. Now that motto was written by a Christian ruler in Hawaii when the state was found, uh, founded. 
Okay, the final piece of the dream. Verse 44 says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be, it be left to another people. It will crush all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, the mountain. And usually, you know, it represents kingdoms here. Uh, the rock does. But not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Now, if you Google this, you'll get a picture of this guy standing there. And then if they show the rock, it's like this little bowling ball sized rock. No. This rock was huge that came out. I mean, this is, it's not a little, you know, that, that little thing is not going to crush and break into pieces. We're talking huge here. The translation really means to pulverize. So a new kingdom will come down and destroy it all. Now, for any, many of us, this would make us kind of worry. But we don't need to worry. Why? Because we're a part of Christ. If we're a part of Christ, you don't need to worry about this, you know, about the when and the how. It's interesting. It's good to know because God says, I want you to know my scriptures. I want you to know my word. I want you to understand what I have to say. You're not going to understand all of it. And I say that up front. That's what the scriptures say. You're not going to understand it all, but you should at least study it. But we don't have to be afraid of it. God always takes care of his remnant. Who are the remnant? We're the remnant. Those that have accepted Christ, those who, who believe in the Lord, those who, who've said, here's my chair, God. Here's my stool, God. You're the one that's in control. I might fight with you for a while, but, but you're in control. Imagine how Daniel feels. He doesn't know how the king's going to react here. I mean, the gold part, no big deal. But the rest of it, it's kind of, you know, out there in a sense. Well, in Psalms... 118, or we want to call it Matthew 21 also. Jesus talks about himself through the psalmist, and it has to do with this. He says, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is a marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that a kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people who will produce fruit. He who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but he whom it falls will be crushed. Now this is a very interesting thing about Christians, uh, American Christians. We're totally rejecting this aspect of God. We're really kind of reinventing God into this kind, loving, non-crushing God, which He is a kind, loving, non-crushing God. But there's also the upset, jealous, I am God, why are you talking to me that, that side of God too? And we like to totally ignore that, especially as American Christians, and it's wrong. God didn't ask us. Sometimes we complain to God like Job, and you know what he told Job? He says, who do you think you are to talk to me like that? And I can almost, you know how we put like inflection on our words, you could almost hear the attitude, who do you think you are? God is God. He created the world. He's done all of this. And then sometimes we go to God and just, can't believe it. And God's like, wait a second, Alan. You don't talk to me like that. Remember who you're talking to me. Uh, remember who you are as you talk to me. In Isaiah 28, 16, he says, See, I lay a, zone, a stone in Zion, a tested zone, 
Let me start that over. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. See, the reality is that we should read the Bible enough and hang out with Bible-believing people enough so that we have a good concept of who the real God is and then accept Him for who He really is and not who we wish He was. See, the real God is a God of justice. He's a God of love. He's a God of grace, but He's a God of justice. And the first time you know, He, he came, He allowed us as humans to treat Him like He meant nothing. And we killed Him on the cross. But the next time He comes, it's not going to be like that at all. He's going to come as the Mighty One. He's going to come as the rock that pulverizes all ungodly nations out there. And He will set up a long-lasting kingdom. Our part in all of this is to make sure we are in Christ before the rock hits the statue. Well, Alan, it can't be that simple. Yes, it is. It's that simple. And everyone that that we love, we're supposed to make sure everyone that we love is in Christ before that rock. Well, how much time do I have? I don't know. Well, I've read that the, the temple has to be rebuilt. Well, did you know there's a warehouse with all the temple components in it waiting to be rebuilt and it can be rebuilt within a month? Well, that's not all that, you know, I need more time than that and talk to all my friends and family that I love that I want them to to understand who God is and believe in God. A a month's not long enough. Well, get working. We don't know when it's going to happen. The reality is, it would be foolish to wait around because the Bible is clear that Christ will return and we will not know the date and the time. Now, we can read certain signs and go, it's getting closer, but we won't know when it's about to happen. So my question is, are you in Christ? Have you ever received Christ? Have you believed on the name and the power of Jesus Christ? Because if you haven't, then it doesn't matter all my teaching today. It doesn't matter how much knowledge you get unless you hand it over to Christ. So what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Verse 46, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Nebuchadnezzar's focusing on man. Daniel went to him saying, this is from God. Remember last week? Hey, I'm an idiot. This really, I, I woke up in the morning and, and, and you know, God just told me all this last night. In other words, I did not come up with this. And Nebuchadnezzar's focusing on the man. And I don't know why Daniel allows this. But verse 47 says, The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. It's ironic that he's sitting here going, It's your God, Daniel. It's the God of Daniel. He's not converted. He's just saying, you know, your God is really cool. He's the, the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. You know, this is really great for us to, to know and to understand. Here you have someone who is just honest and follows the Lord. He he's excelling in God, he's excelling in, in the things that the Lord has put in front of him. 
But he's following God, and that's the main point here. And he gets a promotion. We're so afraid to speak up about the truth. We're so afraid to, to go out there and, and tell people about God because we most of the time we do it in such a disrespectful way that people just kind of roll their eyes and are like, stop talking about that around our company. And it kind of hampers us. But if we learn how to do it in such a respectful way, that rewards and blessings will follow sometimes. The Lord will bless that. Verse 49, it says, Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Daniel becomes literally the chief judge. His boys, his friends, become the the leaders in that area. And what is interesting is the Babylonians believed in a master race. They were a lot like the Nazis. And Nebuchadnezzar was the head of that master race. And here you have a Babylonian king bowing before a Hebrew boy, a Jew. This is pretty amazing. From being on death's doorstep, Ariok coming up, Ariok, I'm here to kill you, to the king bowing down in front of you. This is what God can do in one day's worth of work. If we allow ourselves to be in Christ and submit to his leadership and his authority, which means he takes over, we get off the seat, we don't try to one-cheek the seat, we don't try to, to stand up on the little foot deals and hang on, we allow him to sit in that seat and, and, and make decisions for our lives. Then when we hit rough meetings or rough situations this week, God is right there helping us through those times. Now that's a God that I want to serve. Let's pray. Lord, first of all, I just want to say thank you for being totally in control of this world. Thank you for being in control of governments as we get you know, near elections and, and those of us who are political, we get all antsy about what's going to happen and what we want to happen and we hope you know, our desires that we have. But ultimately, God, I pray that you help us understand that you are totally in control of not only our elections, not only our government, but of this world. And that includes our lives. And I thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that you help us understand and, and how to implement you into our, our daily lives, that we, we find those righteous causes to work on. That as we come together as the body of Christ and, and not political factions, but as the body of Christ, we find those places where you say, I can work with that person on that. Lord, I, I pray that we're like Daniel, that we're wise and we understand where and how and when to say something, when to stand up and say, my God can help with that. I thank you, Lord, for, for helping us. I thank you, Lord, for, for being there for us. And I pray, Lord, that we don't go through our day, we don't go through our issues, our problems, our, our hurts, our joys, our celebrations without thanking you, without recognizing you being in our midst. And I pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you, that His grace and mercy his discipline, all those things get put into your life, get put, get put into action in your life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.